a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Once again, I encourage you to uh, pull up a chair, <clears throat> get ready to revel in wrong think, which uh, it turns out is a surprisingly liberating activity. I've got a special guest joining me. I'd like to introduce him to you. Uh, joining us now by phone, I have Patrick Huey. He is the owner of Victory Independent Planning, LLC. Patrick's also the author of History Lessons for the Modern Investor and the Seven Pillars of Financial Wisdom. <clears throat> Patrick, I am so grateful to have you on the show. Welcome. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, both those books, I think, were basically a substitute for a master's degree in wrong things. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Tell us just a little bit about your background. Um, we were introduced uh, by a mutual friend, Kurt Mercadante. Mm -hmm. I have great admiration mm -hmm. for him and his outlook on the world. And when, right. when he introduced me to you, I knew immediately that uh, Patrick Huey is somebody who has seen a very interesting side of life. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania uh, and uh, didn't really have the money to go to college. Uh, so I took a, uh, a scholarship from the Navy, uh, became an officer and uh, flew jets in the Navy for nine years, uh, deployed overseas twice to some of the hot spots that uh, are still in the news today. Um, and then uh, when I was done with that, um, I got out and was uh, lucky enough to find my first job in finance. Uh, was very quickly disillusioned by it um, and uh, started looking for something where I, I would have a little bit more control over the process and a little bit more um, input into what the clients ultimately received. And uh, fast forward a few years, I, I started my own firm in 2016, um, was doing virtual work before virtual work was cool and or necessary over the last couple of years. Right. And, um, and that's where I am today. I'm still serving clients and uh, doing what I do. Well, based on your experience and, and particularly your, your experience as a certified financial planner, um, I'm, yeah. anxi I'm anxious to pick your brain a little bit about what, uh, what history lessons for the modern investor could teach us. Right now, everybody's pretty well focused on COVID and all the, uh, you know, mitigation efforts. I haven't heard a lot of talk about uh, about finances and about money, and yet uh, this remains a very important part of our lives. It's one of the things, though, that not many people seem to be focusing on. Is there anything important that we are missing today that uh, that we should be paying closer attention to? I, I think there are a number of things, but let me back up because I, I think that uh, one of the things I talk about in the book uh, is actually a, a pandemic. You know, I talk about... Uh, what happened in, in Europe, especially during the Great Plague. Um, and I, I brought this up a lot with clients while we were going through the, the COVID craziness, especially you know, early last year uh, in February and March when, when markets were down 30, 35%. Um, and then as they started to rally, people asked me, well, why? You know, COVID's still here. COVID is still a thing. Why would markets be going up in, in that type of scenario? And what people were missing was that who COVID affects 
Uh, it's typically, you know, older people. Uh, that There are obviously exceptions to that. But in general, older people pass their working years. If you go back and you look at the history of uh, the Great Plague uh, and the plagues uh, in general, they affected everybody. They wiped out, uh, you know, 25 to 30 percent of the European population, depending on the numbers you, you look at. And it was people of working age. Um, and that had a really nasty effect on the supply and demand balance for labor uh, in Europe. Well, none of that took place during COVID. So we didn't see these huge supply and demand uh, uh, imbalances occur. And that, to me, was why things started to recover so quickly and have, have you know, really maintained that momentum over the last 16, 18 months. Interesting. Uh, one of the things that, that comes to mind is, I know this isn't the first time in, in the history of humankind that we've faced some pretty daunting challenges. And I, I'm curious what people could could learn that could help them navigate, you know, today's uncertainty. What could history teach us that would help us know uh, the, the proper steps to take? You know, I, I think that the major thing that I point out to clients all the time uh, you know, based on, on my research and, and, and just history in general, is the cyclicality of life. Uh, you know, things change, obviously. Technology is a big driver of change in our lives. And, and all you have to do is really go back and look at, you know, how different our lives are from just 100 years ago. Uh, you know, 100 years ago, we were all subsistence farmers. Uh, you know, in, in general. Uh, and now um, I don't really know a whole lot of people who even know a farmer. Um, so technology has really changed the way we, we work and the, the way we live, but um, the cyclical nature of life has not changed. Things come and go, you know, as the saying goes, this too shall pass. Right, uh, COVID right. will pass. Um, you know, the, the economic fallout of COVID will pass. And I think as investors, Although we have to understand what history can teach us, we also have to be looking forward and saying, okay, what's next? So are, are there any, uh, any positive signs in the market? I see some danger signals, but I, I don't want to get too wrapped around the axle on those. What, yeah. what, are, the, what are the upsides for those who are, are looking at uh, some of the instability and, and saying, you know, there have been in unstable times before where people did extremely well. Are, are there opportunities likewise for us at, at this time? Yeah. And again, I I always fall back on my history on this one. And and the story I tell people is, you know, yes, is the market frothy? Does it feel kind of bubbly as we continue to push up against uh, record highs? Sure, it does. Um, And I go back to a a press conference uh, in Washington, D.C. in 1996, where Alan Greenspan stood in front of a microphone and he called the markets irrationally exuberant. I don't know if you remember that uh, yes. from the mid to late 90s. Um, and he was perfectly correct about that, but he wasn't fully correct for another three years. right? So the market was frothy and overvalued, but it just kept doing it for another three years until you know, late 1999 when the tech bubble began to, 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 to blow up on us. So. Um, these types of things, even when markets are quote unquote overvalued, they can keep doing that for, for quite some time. Um, and, uh, there's really no way to know when it, when, when it ends. Um, uh, so I think that, you know, may sound like a negative, but it, to me, it's really a positive. I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, the cycles go until the cycles are done. 
Um, there's, you know, it's not like, uh, I, I use the example of Haley's Comet in my, in my book talking about, you know, cyclicality and how things come and go. Well, the nice thing about Haley's Comet and, and other, you know, uh, heavenly bodies is we know when they're coming and going. Unfortunately, in the dismal science of economics, we don't know. Uh, we, you know, we just don't know when the, the, the cycle will turn on us. Interesting. Uh, you know, we're talking with Patrick Huey. He's the uh, author of History Lessons for the Modern Investor. And uh, Patrick, I'm I'm curious if if there is is there is such a thing as a as a safe refuge in in times of instability. And I'm I'm not necessarily trying to appeal to the gold bugs or even the cryptocurrency types, but there are some things available to us that haven't been before. Uh, do any of those offer, you know, a, a promising route forward? Or are there some tried and true things that uh, remain true pretty much, uh, you know, regardless of, of the new technologies? Uh, I think that as investors, uh, for better or for worse, we're, we're presented with a menu uh, of potential investments, unlike anything we've ever seen in history, right? We, we've got, you know, you've got your... your uh, Stocks and bonds, which I think everybody's familiar with by now, uh, but we've also got a lot of uh, exchange-traded funds, uh, mutual funds, those types of things that are a little bit more esoteric and uh, can be uh, in the right hands, useful um, in, in those types of situations. Um, you know, it, like any tool, you have to be careful. Uh, you know, a saw can build a house, but it can also cut your arm off. Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think there are a lot of tools out there specifically to uh, manage risk. And um, I would say that, that now's the time to, to be looking at those, especially with you know interest rates as low as they are, uh, inflation looming. Uh, you're probably looking at long-term interest rates ticking up over time. Uh, and that's kind of a disaster for, for folks who think that, you know, the bond market is, I'm air quoting here, safe, um, they, they may find it to be a lot less safe than it was a generation ago. Um, I think that's, that's pretty clear uh, going forward. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to come back in just a moment, just the other side of our break. We are talking with Patrick Huey, and we're talking about uh, history lessons for the modern investor. So uh, it's a nice to get a little break from, from all the talk about uh, COVID mitigation efforts should be focusing on your uh, you know your future as well we'll be back right after this this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show Hey, welcome back to the show. My special guest this time around is Patrick Huey. He's the owner of Victory Independent Planning, LLC. He's the author of History Lessons for the Modern Investor and the Seven Pillars of Financial Wisdom. Patrick, I appreciate you letting me pick your brain today. One of the things you talked about in our last segment, uh, you talked a little bit about uh, risk. And, and something yeah. that, that has been on my mind, particularly is over the last year and a half, is a lot of things have felt very uncertain. Is there ever such a thing as a risk-free investing environment? Will, will people ever find such a thing? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I, I think that uh, risk is ever-present. 
Um, and if we haven't learned that over the last 18 months, then, then we've got a serious problem. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think that just going back even to the beginning days of humanity as we're, you know, emerging into this hunter-gatherer society, of course there was risk. Um, there was always risk. Uh, there was risk of, uh, you know, disease and there was risk of death and there was uh, risk of, of, uh, of you name it. Um, that hasn't changed. Uh, we've done a very good job of mitigating some of the serious risks uh, to, to mankind, uh, to humankind, um, but uh, not fully. And I think financial markets reflect that as well. You could say that, well, I'll just put my money uh, in, in cash, uh, but the risk to cash is that uh, you suffer inflation. Right. Uh, now, right. you know, the dollar that you put away is worth 97 cents a year from now, if you're lucky. Um, so, you know, I think there's risk to every financial decision and that's why financial planners exist is to run through the risk reward scenarios of each and every decision. It's a lot to take in. And I know there are a lot of people, you know, doing their very best. I'm curious though, Patrick, what, what are the common mistakes you see people making as, as they're trying to find their way forward? I think the most common one right now um, and and historically as well is uh, mismanaging risk. Uh, so it, it's human nature in times of you know perceived low risk environments to say, well, hey, uh, things are going well. Um, I'm going to make a change and up my allocation to stocks or crypto or, or whatever it is. Uh, just based on the lack of volatility we've seen in this market over the last 16, 18 months. Um, I think that's a mistake in most cases, uh, because if you've got a proper plan in place, it doesn't really matter what the market is doing. It matters what you're doing. Um, and um, trying to chase returns uh, at, at this point in a market cycle, to me, um, is one of the bigger mistakes you, you see people make. I talk about it uh, in history lessons for the modern investor based on, um, you know, the, the story of Mount, Mount Vesuvius. Mount Vesuvius is fantastic. Uh, Oceanside um, uh, real estate uh, with incredible soil. The problem is that soil is incredible because uh, of volcanic eruptions that, you know, have happened throughout history. So you can say that, you know, there hasn't been an eruption in I think now 40 or 50 years uh, and a major one in, in probably a couple generations. So go ahead and build. Right. Um, but the problem is, you know, you, you are taking a risk there that uh, you're, you're building uh, in the death zone uh, of an active volcano. Right. So knowing the risks are, is, is part of the equation. Um, mm-hmm. What what do people tend to uh, to overlook when it, when it comes to assessing what, what actually is going to affect them. I mean, you mentioned inflation. And I think that's a huge one. Sure. That's, that's robbing every dollar of its buying power, whether it's under your mattress or sitting in a savings account. What are some of the other yeah. risks that people uh, tend not to recognize in, until it's right upon them? Um, I, you know, it, it's part of the same story, but I think interest rate risk is, is one that uh, people are, are ignoring and have ignored really for the last decade or so. 
Uh, we got uh, lulled into a very false sense of security over the last generation. You know, I can remember when my parents bought the house I grew up in. Um, I want to say that their mortgage was in the 12 to 13 percent uh, range. Uh, and that's not because they were bad borrowers. It was because uh, that's where interest rates were. Uh, and as interest rates have come down over the last 40 years, uh, that's been a natural tailwind to the bond market. And, and uh, that is ending. Um, you know, interest rate risk is a real thing. So if you're buying uh, fixed income and, and bonds right now, the chance uh, of selling them at a later date for anything close to what you paid is really, really small. Um, so uh, I think that's one of the big risks that people are, are ignoring just because they, that's what they've been taught. They've been taught to ignore it by 45 years or 40 years of I'm curious, too, about uh, the seven pillars of financial wisdom, because uh, mm-hmm. you obviously take, you know, a view of history and learning from history. Um, were, were these pillars gleaned from, you know, that that long term view? Yeah, what I tried to do with, with that book specifically is give folks an idea of what they should be looking for if they're hiring help. If you're hiring somebody to, to come in and help you with your finances, you know, here are the seven things that, that I would, would really look at. Um, and they, you know, they include some, some easy ones like, well, hey, you should obviously know this person's education and you should understand what all the letters mean after their name. Um, but you should also know what their contact style is. Are they proactive? Are they reactive? Um, are they going to give you the things that you need uh, on a timely basis? Or are you going to be chasing them around all the time, um, trying, to, trying to get a hold of them because they've got a thousand clients or, or something like that? It's, you know, it's really meant to uh, drive folks in the right direction to get the help that they need. And, and I guess it goes without saying, not every financial advisor is, is created equal. So, so help us understand if, if you're looking for someone to advise you on your investing and planning for your f- financial future, what are the, mm-hmm. b- besides the qualities you just mentioned, um, are, are there some danger signals, some red flags that, that should make you reconsider, you know, engaging, you know, certain people? Yeah, I, I mean, I think early on in a relationship, you know, as, as you're kind of interviewing folks, you want to be very uh, mindful of communication style. Um, I, you know, I talk about uh, emotional uh, EQ instead of IQ. Um, you know, do they do they do what they're going to? Yeah, do they do what they say they're going to do? Um, are they timely? Uh, you know, just little signals like that early on. But but also, I really emphasize, um, you know, not every advisor is for every person. I'm not for everybody. Um, my my qualifications don't match with every single advisor out there, uh, or excuse me, every client out there, um, and that's why I say you got to know what the letters after people's names mean. You know, I'm a certified financial planning practitioner, CFP. What does that mean? Uh, it, it means that I've got a very general, uh, top-down view of things, and that's how I start relationships with clients. Um, you know, I don't jump in immediately and start talking about stocks, bonds, crypto, uh, that sort of thing, um, because uh, there's a whole story behind you as a person and what you should invest in ultimately. Um, so that to me is, is a big deal, making sure that the credentials these folks have match up with what you're trying to get. If you're, 
if you're just, hey, I, you know, I want to buy this and sell that, uh, I'm probably not your guy. Uh, but if you want to, you know, tell me the story of your life and then rely on me uh, to, to give you uh, guidance on your finances from top to bottom, soup to nuts, then maybe I am your guy. So um, that's a long-winded answer to a to a short question. No, but that's unfortunately in finance and finance that happens quite often. That's perfect, Patrick. We're down to about thirty seconds here. How can people sure. reach you? Do you have a website we can direct them to? Yeah, I would direct them to uh, victoryindependentplanning.com. There's also historylessonsforthemoderninvestor.com. You can check me out. My books are uh, on Amazon. Uh, We've also got an Instagram feed with uh, History Lessons, Modern Investor. Okay, Patrick Huey, thank you so much for being my guest. I'll have links in the show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by lifesavingfoods.com. Now, this is food storage, just so you know. It's always a good idea. Good to have something set aside for a rainy day. Better still if what you have set aside has a 25-year shelf life. And better still, when you can choose from lots of different packages, I mean, you may not need a full year's supply. I know that's kind of the target a lot of people go for. But if you're looking for, oh, I don't know, maybe you're looking for something that you could grab and go in the case of an emergency, check them out. Lifesavingfoods.com. They've got a great selection that will fit any budget or any potential uh, scenario that you might need, whether it's just a little bit to fill in some gaps in your food storage, or if you're serious about getting started with a full, true food storage program. And when you mention my name at checkout, in fact, when you put in the coupon code HYDE, that will get you 10% off your purchase. You can find a link to them in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Well, sometimes we wonder, is there anybody really looking out for me? And the answer is, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. One thing we know for certain, though, is that there are folks who are definitely looking at us and not necessarily in a good way. Edward Snowden has been warning Apple customers the all-seeing eye in your iPhone has just declared war on your privacy. I think it's worth considering what he has to say. He says, by now you've probably heard, Apple plans to push a new and uniquely intrusive surveillance system out to many of the more than 1 billion iPhones that it sold, all of which run the behemoth's proprietary take-it-or-leave-it software. He says this new offensive is tentatively slated to begin with the launch of iOS 15, almost essentially, or almost certainly rather, in mid-September, with the devices of the U.S. user base designated as the initial targets. Now, apparently, other countries have been told they'll be spared, but not for long. Now, Snowden says, you might have noticed I haven't mentioned which problem it is that Apple is purporting to solve. Why? Because it doesn't matter. He says, having read thousands upon thousands of remarks on this growing scandal, he says, it's become clear to me that many understand it doesn't matter but few have been actually willing to say it. Speaking candidly, if that's still allowed, 
That's the way it always goes when someone of institutional significance launches a campaign to defend an indefensible intrusion into our private spaces. They make a mad dash to the supposed high ground from which they speak in low, solemn tones about their moral mission before fervently invoking the dread specter of the four horsemen of the infopocalypse. Warning that only a dubious amulet or suspicious software update can save us from the most threatening members of our species. And suddenly everyone with a principled objection is forced to preface their concern with apologetic throat clearing and the establishment of bona fides. I lost a friend when the towers came down. However, as a parent, I understand this is a real problem. Now, Edward Snowden says, look, as a parent, I'm here to tell you that sometimes it doesn't matter why the man in the handsome suit is doing something. What matters are the consequences. His point being that Apple's new system, regardless of how anyone tries to justify it, will permanently redefine what belongs to you and what belongs to them. How will it do this? Well, he says the task Apple intends in its new surveillance system is preventing cloud systems from being used to store digital contraband. In this case, unlawful images uploaded by their customers. And it traditionally performed this by searching their systems. Now, while it's problematic for anyone to search through a billion people's private files, the fact that they can only see the files you gave them is a crucial limitation. But Edward Snowden says that's all set to change. Under the new design, your phone will now perform these searches on Apple's behalf before your photos have even reached their iCloud servers. And yada, 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 if enough forbidden content is discovered, law enforcement will be notified. Now, he says, I intentionally wave away the technical and procedural details of Apple's system here, some of which are quite clever because they, like our man in the handsome suit, merely distract from the most pressing fact, the fact that in just a few weeks, Apple plans to erase the boundary dividing which devices work for you and which devices work for them. So why is this so important? Well, Edward Snowden says once the precedent has been set that it's fit and proper for even a pro-privacy company like Apple to make products that betray their users and owners, Apple itself will lose all control over how that precedent is applied. He says as soon as the public first came to learn of the spy phone plan, experts began investigating its technical weaknesses and the many ways it could be abused primarily within the parameters of Apple's design. And although these valiant vulnerability research efforts have produced compelling evidence that the system is seriously flawed, they seriously miss the point. Apple gets to decide whether or not their phones will monitor their owners' infractions for the government. But it's the government that gets to decide what constitutes an infraction and how to handle it. I can see that being a problem. Now, for its part, Apple says their system in its initial version 1.0 design has a narrow focus. It only scrutinizes photos intended to be uploaded to iCloud. Although for 85% of its customers, that's going to mean every photo. And it doesn't scrutinize them beyond a simple comparison against a database of specific examples of previously identified child sexual abuse material, or CSAM. So if you're an enterprising pedophile with a basement full of CSAM-tainted iPhones, Apple welcomes you to entirely exempt yourself from these scans by simply flitching the, switching the, by flipping the disable iCloud photo switch, which is a bypass which reveals that the system was never designed to protect children, as they would have you believe, but rather to protect their brand. 
And as long as you keep that material off their servers and keep Apple out of the headlines, well, Apple doesn't care. So what happens when, in a few years at the latest, a politician points out that, and in order to protect the children, bills are passed in the legislature to prohibit this disabled bypass, effectively compelling Apple to scan photos that aren't backed up to iCloud? And what happens when a party in India demands they start scanning for memes associated with a separatist movement? What happens when the U.K. demands that they scan for a library of terrorist imagery? How long do we have left before the iPhone in your pocket begins quietly filing reports about encountering extremist political material? Or about your presence at a civil disturbance? Or simply about your iPhone's possession of a video clip that contains, or maybe not contains, a blurry image of a passerby who resembles, according to the algorithm, a person of interest. Edward Snowden says if Apple demonstrates the capability and willingness to continuously, remotely search every phone for evidence of one particular type of crime, these are the questions for which they will have no answer. And yet an answer will come, and it will come from the worst lawmakers of the worst governments. He says this is not a slippery slope, it's a cliff. One particular frustration for him is he says, I know some people at Apple. I even like some of the people at Apple. Bright, principled people who should know better. Actually, who do know better. Every security expert in the world is screaming themselves hoarse right now, imploring Apple to stop. Even those experts who, in more normal circumstances, reliably argue in favor of censorship. Even some survivors of child exploitation are against it. And yet, as the OG designer Galileo once said... It moves. Snowden says, faced with a blistering torrent of global condemnation, Apple has responded not by addressing any concerns or making any changes, or more sensibly, by just scrapping the plan altogether, but by deploying their man-in-the-handsome-suit software chief who resembles the well-moistured villain from a movie about Wall Street to give quotes to, yes, the Wall Street Journal about how sorry the company is for the confusion it's caused. But how the public shouldn't worry, Apple feels very good about what they're doing. Well, as long as they feel good, (laughs) then I guess we're just going to have to take it, right? Edward Snowden says, We're bearing witness to the construction of an all-seeing eye, an eye of improvidence, under whose aegis every iPhone will search itself for whatever Apple wants or whatever Apple is directed to want. They're inventing a world in which every product you purchase owes its highest loyalty to someone other than its owner. To put it bluntly, he says, that's not an innovation. That's a tragedy. That's a disaster in the making. He says, maybe I'm confused. Or maybe I just think different. Nice twist of fate there, a nice twist of a phrase on the part of Edward Snowden. Of course, I have a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I would encourage you to check it out for yourself. Maybe subscribe to uh, Snowden's Substack if you want to follow his musings on some of the latest things going on. The guy's pretty dialed in. I don't know what you think of him. Some people still think, oh, he's a traitor. He blew the whistle on the uh, U.S. government spying on its citizens. I still see the guy as somewhat of a hero. In fact, I see him as definitely a hero. Guess that doesn't mean you have to, but he's got some pretty good stuff to say. Stick around. When we come back, we're going to be talking with my friend Kristen Chevrier about your health freedom.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I know that every one of us is kind of doing what we can, right? In our own way, we are trying to carry that torch of freedom forward. And uh, my guest, who is joining me now, Kristen Chevrier, is a perfect example of this. Uh, I don't know very many people who worked harder to help people understand the importance of maintaining control of their health freedom. And uh, Kristen, welcome to the show. I understand that uh, not only have you been extra busy, what with, you know, pandemic and all, but uh, you actually have a very special event coming up that uh, you wanted uh, my listeners to know about. We do. We have an amazing event coming up on September 10th and 11th. Um, We have a benefit gala that is on September 10th. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who's looking at it from which direction, that part is sold out. But we also have an all-day symposium on September 11th in Layton, Utah, um, starting at 8 a.m. and ending at 6.45 p.m. So it's jam-packed with information. And we have a whole bunch of doctors that we're flying in. We've got Dr. Peter McCullough, who is um, he's a cardiologist from uh, Texas. And he is a brilliant, articulate very kind person and um, very busy because the whole world wants to hear from him. He's a professor of medicine at Texas A&M College of Medicine. He's the president of the Cardio Renal Society of America. He's testified before the Texas legislature and he has been, he has spent the last year helping to develop protocols for taking care of people before they get COVID, after they get COVID, and before they go to the hospital, when they get to the hospital, and for the long haulers as well. So he is, he's perfect for what's happening right now, and we're thrilled to have him coming. Let me we guess, also though. Have, let me oh, guess, Kristen. This, this uh, Dr. McCullough, um, would, would he be considered out of favor <laughs> with the with the ruling class, the political class, and, and, uh, and some of the medical authorities? So it's really hard to discredit him because of, I've only given you just a teeny tiny taste of his credentials. So it's, a, it's difficult to discredit him, but at the same time, he is being persecuted for his position on this. And so wow. I know that he's wow. lost one of his positions already because of this. The only reason I ask is, is because this is common. It takes courage for individuals like him and, and the other speakers that you have um, for this symposium to speak out because there's a very active uh, effort to punish them for straying from the orthodoxy. There absolutely is. And one of the, the biggest problems that we have right now is that these brilliant scientists and medical professionals are um, writing, they're doing studies. And the studies are being peer reviewed and released, and then they're going, they're being retracted. And the reason that they're being retracted is that they um, oppose the the doctrine, the the party line, or the prevailing consensus. What, <laughs> yes, and so, and that is, science is not consensus. No, science has to not be consensus because we have to be able to explore different avenues or it becomes religion. 
instead of science. So we there was actually a group, there is a group of criminal investigators who are looking into the overwhelming number of articles, uh, studies that are being retracted that have to do with um, the negative side of vaccines and the negative side of standard of care procedures. So those, those studies are overwhelmingly the ones that are being retracted right now. I it's can't, just I can't very imagine, interesting. I can't imagine why someone would want to keep those things, oh, I don't know, you know, out of the public's eyes. Yeah. What, yeah. Kristen, let our listeners know this is not just a, you know this is not just a fad or something new. This is a fight that you have been very involved in for a long time. That being a person's health freedom. When we talk about health freedom, what all does that encompass? Well, basically, what it encompasses is informed consent for any medical procedure. So, if you, it doesn't matter whether you're having a plate put in one of your joints or whether you're having a hysterectomy or you're having an injection of of some kind of steroid or a vaccine or whatever, anything that, that is invasive to your body, you deserve to have fully informed consent. You deserve to have all, you don't only deserve to, to have it, you should be responsible enough to, to demand it. Um, you need to know what's happening, on what the benefits are, what are the drawbacks, and you need to have access to all of the science and not just a pretty brochure that somebody put together to help you feel comfortable accepting it. Wow. So informed consent is the bedrock of ethical medicine. And we have had a struggle with informed consent since, well, probably before Hitler, but Hitler is the one who is most notable for for experimenting on people without their consent. So this is a critical element of safety in medicine. If we don't have the opportunity to say no without coercion or penalty, then we don't have medical freedom. And if you don't have medical freedom, honestly, what kind of freedom do you have? Yeah, I, I've always seen this as kind of a periphery thing. Like, it's it's a very legitimate cause, but, you know, for most people, it's it's only going to affect them in a few situations of their lives. That's how I used to think of it. Over the last year and a half, I have come to see that there's no one who c- can escape the implications of what's happening right now. Either you have the autonomy and the say over your body, or you don't. And and I'm I'm wondering why more people don't see this. You know, obviously, you've been paying attention for a while. I have been, and this has been on just on the periphery for a long time. There have been a lot of people who have been suffering under medical tyranny, not necessarily in Utah as much because we have had exemptions available to us, and we still do for pre-K through higher ed with a couple of exceptions, and the most notable being medical students. Um, but if you are in, in pre-K through higher ed, you probably have access unless you're a medical student, to a, a, a philosophical, religious, or medical exemption from any or all vaccines. And you, if you go to my website, yourhealthfreedom.org, um, I'm actually in the process of doing a, a parent resource tab for people to just look at, at their rights, to, to understand what their, not their rights, 
their rights are different sometimes from what what the law says, <laughs> but to look at what the law says so that they can defend their their choices. So um, it's just really important to know what what the laws are, partly so that you can influence changing bad laws and partly so that you can defend yourself using the good laws. Oh, that makes sense. So, yeah, and it's so important right now. Oh, I started to say that there are states that are suffering under medical tyranny, California, New York. Um, I know there there are a few others. Hawaii has been a little draconian. Um, and, and when it gets this way, we end up with more people getting injured because they, they don't have the options to choose. And I have seen personally many, many children who have been injured by vaccines where they lost skills overnight or after a two-week period after getting a vaccine. And the, the temporal relationship and the causal relationship are very clear, although I will tell you that they are frequently denied by, by the medical professionals. You go in there and you say, my child could walk and talk yesterday. You gave them the vaccine and now they can't walk. They can't talk. They don't make eye contact. And they say it wasn't the vaccine. We, wow. we don't know what it is, but we're sure it wasn't the vaccine. That's what they say. So after you talk to hundreds of parents who say the same thing, you start to see the pattern and, and you see the suffering that they are going through with no help from anyone. And, and if anything, they're more persecuted because of the injury and because they know that it happens from the vaccine. Kristen, what, so, what is the website once again, where people can go for more information? It is yourhealthfreedom.org. And right there on the homepage, I have links to protocols for treating COVID pre, during hospitalization and long haulers. Um, and those, that's at the Frontline Doctors website, but I've linked to it there. And then I also have how to write a religious exemption, the things that you need to consider okay. if you're going to write a religious exemption. And um, then we have the ticket sales are also on that page. And these doctors that we have coming are stellar, and we don't want to miss them. Okay. I appreciate you coming on the show and talking about it, and I hope you, are, uh, I hope you have a capacity crowd, even if it's virtual. Thank you. See you, Kristen. Thank you so much. Bye. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hey there. Welcome to the show. Yep, this is the place. This is where we revel in wrong think. It's actually kind of the unofficial motto for the show, but... It's something that every person ought to do if they want to clearly see and understand the world around them as well as understand what they can do to make that world a better place. 
So I welcome you aboard. We've got some great stuff coming up this hour. In fact, uh, second half of this hour, we're going to be talking with uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Joel Hirschhorn. He is the author of a book called Pandemic Blunder. And it, with, uh, with the FDA's approval of the Pfizer vaccine earlier this week, he has some thoughts. Yes, dissenting thoughts that are worth considering. I don't know about you, but I, I like to at least hear what the dissenters have to say. There is no implication here that you have to agree. You have to think exactly this way. But sometimes there's so much uniformity and there's just such a an effort to maintain that official narrative over everything else. I mean, come on, we've got the fact checkers. We've got Twitter and Facebook doing their best to make sure that you don't consider anything outside of the approved opinions that fit within that narrative. Well, Dr. Hirschhorn is, uh, he is a great voice of dissent. If for no other reason, he will give you some things to consider that you wouldn't hear otherwise. So that's coming up. I want to start, though, with a question that I think people may face in different ways and for different reasons, and that is, what's the best use of my time, my energy, and my resources? And this is especially a tough question for young people who are maybe embarking on a career. I came across an article on the Foundation for Economic Education's website from a young actress by the name of Brett Cooper. And she gave up her seat in a prestigious law school just a week before orientation. Now, that seems like a (laughs) kind of a crazy thing to do. I mean, is this just an unstable person? Is she just flaky or what? You should hear what she has to say, though. She says, for the past year, my sights had been set on law school. I spent my time studying for the LSAT, polishing personal statements, graduating from UCLA with an attractive transcript, and it's all paid off, or it all paid off when I committed to my dream JD program this spring. But just a week before orientation began, she says, I made the decision to give up my seat. Now, the Wall Street Journal recently reported that while the financial cost of legal education continues to increase, the value and payout of the degree has plummeted, and the statistics are staggering. She says, upon entering the workforce, fewer than one in four law students believe that their degree is worth the financial cost. More than 95% of these students take out loans for their education, and on average, they graduate with $150,000 in debt. However, as the median salary for recent law graduates is $75,000 a year in the private sector and only 55000 in the public sector, most of these hopeful and ambitious students are unable to secure the high-paying jobs a law degree once promised. Now, in the past, being able to comfortably pay off student loans, that was a given for law students. However, the median starting salary for a private sector lawyer has stayed stagnant. In fact, stagnant rather. And in fact, it's begun to decrease as there's an influx of lawyers and not enough demand for legal work, leaving many recent law school graduates unable to make their loan payments. So in short, for many students, law school is no longer a ticket to financial stability. For many, it's just not worth the cost. Now that raises a follow-up question. What's driving this? Government intervention in the form of subsidized loans has degraded the return on investment of most graduate-level degrees. That includes law degrees. In 2005, Congress passed the Higher Education Reconciliation Act, which created the PLUS program for graduate students and set no limit to the amount of tuition money they could borrow. 
This, in addition to the Federal Reserve forcing interest rates to near zero and the growing prospect of loan forgiveness, has made federal loans an irresistible option for incoming law students. Brett Cooper says the unintended consequence of this seemingly generous policy was that it gave academic institutions the ability to hike the cost of their programs without sacrificing the number of students willing and suddenly able to pay the price. Now, considering that the average student takes out $150,000 in loans, these academic institutions have seemingly struck gold. Supporting this, the Wall Street Journal noted that since universities receive tuition up front, they've benefited from free-flowing federal loan money and have an economic incentive to expand graduate degree programs and face no consequences if students can't afford to pay the federal loans after they leave. However, the increase in tuition hasn't deterred the number of students applying. In fact, those limitless loans have only caused a surge. The Law School Admission Council reported that the number of applicants in the 2020-2021 academic year was 35% higher than the previous year, a year which had already seen an increase of 56%. This growth is making the application process increasingly competitive It's also giving law schools the opportunity to expand their programs and hike their tuitions. As a result, the student loan bubble continues to grow. More and more hopeful students are being churned into the market with both looming debt and lower salaries as the demand for lawyers hasn't increased with the new burgeoning supply. So there's a great lesson here in the cost of interventionism. And we're talking government interventionism, not military interventionism. In the book Economics in One Lesson, Henry Hazlitt wrote that the bad economist sees only the direct consequences of a proposed course. The good economist looks also at the longer and indirect consequences. Frederick Bastiat also had an essay on this, That Which is Seen and That Which is Not Seen. Same concept, just a couple of different economists. Brett Cooper says, as as evidenced by the current broken system of graduate education, it's clear that legislators responsible for federal student loan programs failed to have foresight about the possible consequences of interfering in higher education's market. Hoping to make the attainment of graduate degrees more accessible, the government stepped in with limitless federal loans. However, with so many students now able to enroll in these programs, the job market can't keep up. She points out in the past 10 years, there have been over 15 civil lawsuits filed against law schools for allegedly falsifying their post-graduation employment rates. And the students at these mostly mid-tier universities took out loans believing they would have comfortable salaries upon gaining their degree. However, most of them have been left unemployed, working outside of law or making less than what they were led to expect. Meanwhile, the $37 billion owed by students annually continues to expand, putting more people further in debt while costing taxpayers more money each year. Now, that's far from what the government hoped to achieve. And economist Ludwig von Mises explained this action well in Human Action. Quote, All varieties of interference with the market phenomena not only fail to, bring, not only fail to achieve rather, the ends aimed at by their authors and supporters, but bring about a state of affairs which is less desirable than the previous state of affairs which they were designed to alter, end quote. So this is a lesson the government should keep in mind as alumni continue to cry for government bailouts and loan forgiveness. 
something Joe Biden actually has been, you know, pretty eager to give. I don't I don't recall exactly how much student loan debt he's forgiven, but he's he's been pretty generous. That's easy to do with other people's money. I guess that makes sense. Brett Cooper says continuing to financially intervene in graduate education will only deepen the crisis. And that's true for the students and for the taxpayers alike. She says, while I worked hard to get into law school and I don't regret my efforts, the statistics I uncovered were a wake-up call. What once was a promise of a lucrative career is now a promise of debt and a degree that is steadily devaluing. No thanks. At a time when less than 25% of law students believe their financial investment paid off, she says, I think I'll be happy to be putting my energy and resources elsewhere. I don't expect that was an easy decision. That's pretty tough. But I admire her for, first of all, sitting down and noodling out, is this really going to be worth it? How many times do we just get kind of stuck in, well, nope, I'm committed, I'm doing this, no matter what. I think she's got the flexibility to to take that intellect and take those talents and, and put them to use in something else. And if the world doesn't have another lawyer, well... Somehow, we'll get by, but I don't know how, but we'll make it work. I'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Strongly urge you to check it out for yourself and, uh, you know, follow the links within. She backs up the studies and sources, you know, with, with further hyperlinks. Okay, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back in just a few moments. Have you noticed how the definition of terror threat has been devolving downward? To the point where even Grandpa might be a terrorist? Got some interesting thoughts on that, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. Yes, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And yes, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is the team you should talk to if you are looking for a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, maybe just trying to refinance your existing loan. Interest rates are still pretty low. They're not going to stay there forever. But the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has decades of experience in the lending industry, meaning they can get you what you need and get it done in a quick fashion, which is important because this is one of the hottest real estate markets ever. And when you find the home of your dreams, your financing has to be squared away right now. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. You can call 435-703-4522. Or you can visit the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. And tell them thanks for being a sponsor of the show. So you've probably noticed the U.S. definition, the U.S. government's definition of what constitutes a potential terrorist is getting downright silly. The uh, Department of Homeland Security terror warning alert or terror alert warning that came out back on August 13th was a good example of this. People who disagree with policies designed to contain COVID may be potential violent extremists or terrorists. In other words, shut up and do what you're told. And if you don't, well, there's a good chance you might be a terrorist. 
I mean, we're at the point where basically any disagreement with some government policy is enough to put you under suspicion. Well, that was fertile ground for uh, Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org. He's got a column titled, Keeping an Eye on Grandpa, the Terrorist. And he says, I just learned I may be a terrorist. On August 13th, the Secretary of Homeland Security issued a statement warning about an increase in domestic and foreign terrorism. At the end of the document's summary were these words, quote, Such threats are also exacerbated by impacts of the ongoing global pandemic, including grievances over public health safety measures and perceived government restrictions. Oh, they're just perceived, are they? They're not something that someone will threaten to arrest me or otherwise, you know, deprive me of my freedom or deprive me of my job over. Yes, yes, just perceived. Okay. Jeff Minnick says, for more than a year, I've criticized in print our state and federal government's mandates regarding the Wuhan virus. He says, I've expressed grievances over public health safety measures and government restrictions. And these were not, by the way, perceived government restrictions. They were real restrictions that closed businesses, some of them permanently, shut down schools, restricted services at my church, closed my library for months, and forced me to wear a face mask. But he says, still, I've never thought of myself as a terrorist. And so I wondered, if I'm declared a terrorist, how am I supposed to fit that image? He says, should I dress differently? On most days, I wear khaki trousers and a button-down shirt. The Taliban wear head coverings and Middle Eastern clothing. Antifa members dress in black. He says, in my basement is a tuxedo I've worn once in 15 years. If it still fits, that's doubtful. Should I adopt that as my signature uniform and become a dapper desperado? And what about my physical appearance? Those Taliban dudes sport beards, and the Antifa rioters have long hair and tattoos. But Jeff Minnick says, I've never grown a beard in my life, and my body is afflicted with enough old age marks without adding ink to the mix. So that's not going to work. And he says, the terrorists also seem like a scruffy lot. Do they brush their teeth, bathe, or clip their nails? If I go more than a couple of days without shaving, I start thinking I might make some money standing on a street corner with my hand out. Not a pretty sight, to say the least. He also says, nor have I shot a pistol or rifle in 20 years. Perhaps I should start popping off a few rounds with my twenty-two every once in a while. He says, I do confess that when my six-year-old grandson visits with the inevitable question, can we shoot the BB gun? We step into the backyard, and he plinks away at a cardboard box while I teach him gun safety and offer some shooting tips. That kid's got quite an eye, and I... Good grief! Am I creating a junior terrorist? Should I throw away that Red Rider and give the little guy some dolls for his entertainment? Jeff Minnick says, on holidays like Independence Day, Memorial Day, and Flag Day, I put out five miniature American flags along the sidewalk of the house in which I live. Is that an act of terrorism? Some people who these days find flying the flag disturbing may think so. And last winter, when my local grocery store still required masks, I once strolled the aisle and softly sang, America. Did that gentle protest against masks and a reminder of who we are as a people constitute an act of terrorism? He says, if I'm a terrorist, shouldn't I issue some sort of manifesto? Of course, he says, in my case, I'd print out two truly radical documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Another question, can grandpas be terrorists? I'd prefer reading a book on my front porch to being chased down the street by a cop half my age. But he says, the truth is, I don't know how to be a terrorist. 
For example, I have no idea what foods terrorists eat or what sort of cars they drive. Do they stay awake half the night, drinking heavily and railing against the system? He says, my own mood mellows when I drink wine, so I wouldn't do too well on this front. In fact, he says, I wasn't even sure of the definition of terrorism, so I looked it up online and found that terrorism is the unlawful use of force and intimidation, especially against civilians, in pursuit of political aims. And he said, that set me to thinking. If government orders businesses to lock their doors and churches to close down, banishes discussion of therapeutic treatment for the Wuhan virus, and arrests citizens as insurrectionists, holding them for months in jail for trespassing, would those unconstitutional maneuvers qualify as unlawful intimidation? Ah, just kidding. He says, but the same government that issues directives like the one above has spent the month since January 2021 opening our southern border to hundreds of thousands of migrants, some of whom may intend harm in the United States. And he says, in more recent months, the same government has created and armed battalions of terrorists in Afghanistan. We can only hope that someone in our government is paying attention to the real terrorists. Now, he brings up a couple of things here that uh, probably bear a little bit further examination. Um, I know the Afghanistan situation is uh, tricky, to put it mildly. And I don't want to rub salt in anyone's wounds here. Um, The Afghan people, and I'm talking the people, just the folks who live there, not their government, not the Taliban, you know, they live there too. But just the average Afghan citizen has beef with the U.S., Despite all the, you know, professed, hey, we're just there, you know, to make sure that they receive the blessings of democracy, man. Um, I don't think that they see it that way, necessarily. I mean, look, I've never lived under military occupation. It doesn't look like fun, though. It looks to me like uh, no matter how well-intentioned, if you got a boot on the back of your neck, that probably sucks. If someone you know has been taken out in a drone strike or... You know, just just a routine patrol where they came a little too close to the soldiers and they got lit up because they didn't stop their car in time. You know, the soldiers are just trying to do what they can to protect their lives, right? Do you think that matters to an Afghan person who's lost, you know, a loved one who's seen a loved one machine gunned right in front of their face or blown up in a drone strike? I'm not saying that this would justify acts of terror. I'm just saying there are some people who have legitimate beef with what our country has done to their country and to them personally by extension. Now, I also believe there are people who sincerely would like to come here because they understand there is a promise of a better life in spite of whatever problems we've got with Washington, D.C. right now. I guess what I'm hoping is that the lesson is Interventionism is always the incubator of trouble, including terrorism. And it's very telling that our government right now is looking at anybody who may possibly disagree and saying, hey, that may be a potential terrorist. Because we all know once those words are invoked, once you are identified as a terrorist, there are no rules. Our government claims the ability and the power to kill you extrajudicially anytime, anywhere on the planet. What's the difference between a government that recognizes no limits on its power and some of the totalitarian regimes that we still look at today and say, oh, they were horrible? You know the answer. There's no difference. It's just a matter of degree. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I'm very happy to have Dr. Joel Hirschhorn joining me now. He is the author of Pandemic Blunder. And uh, Dr. Hirschhorn, I'm going to ask you if you would just uh, kind of give us some of your uh, your background so people understand that uh, we are talking to a legit doctor um, who may be a dissenting voice compared to the the dominant narrative, but you've got some very valuable stuff to share with us. Tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you have done. Okay, I'm, I'm actually a PhD, not an MD, but... Uh, I started out as a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I directed a medical research program uh, between the medical school and the College of Engineering and uh, moved on to the U.S. Congress Office of Technology Assessment, uh, where I directed a lot of high-level studies uh, related to health issues. And I testified at 50 times at Senate and House hearings as a trusted expert, okay, and moved on to National Governors Association. Again, a lot of studies related to health, decades of working on health issues. Uh, since I retired, I'm an executive volunteer at uh, a major hospital, uh, Hopkins Hospital. And, uh, and uh, since uh, early 2020, I've been working on pandemic issues and what triggered me to get involved um, was I was seeing all this data coming out uh, initially from Dr. Zelenko in New York, who's a great innovative doctor who wrote the forward for my book. And all this data was showing me <laughs> we had a solution. We had a cure for COVID-19. And yet the government <laughs> was not promoting this. And not only that, the government started to block the wide use of generics like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which, again, countless studies have shown really work effectively. They're safe, they're cheap, and, of course, their competition to the drug industry's trillion-dollar business of making COVID vaccines. So we, we live in an insane world. Uh, the strategy that Fauci pushed initially in 2020 was wait for the vaccine strategy and in the meantime, he was willing to sacrifice the lives of hundreds of thousands of people who are not getting access to these treatment, what we call early treatment protocols. And then we found out not only do these drugs, the generics, uh, COVID-19 in a few days, if they're given early, but they also act as prophylactic. That is, if you take ivermectin particularly, is very popular, Popular, by the way, among physicians. I checked this yesterday. It's amazing how many physicians are taking a low dose of ivermectin, usually one tablet a week, and uh, just to as a preventive, okay? That is a real alternative to vaccines, which I have very negative views about and we can talk about. Uh, my latest article that just went up the other night uh, was the craziness, the insanity of FDA approving the Pfizer COVID vaccine. And I can explain why this was an insane decision. It was a political decision, not a, a good medical decision. Well, let's let's dive right in there because 
that that has emboldened i mean there was a lot of push before there was a, there was a tremendous amount of um arm twisting if you will take the shot get the shot get the shot and then uh, with the fda yes, approval yes. now it's like okay you have no excuses as if that was the only reason that people were were hesitant to to take the shot Let's let's talk about this this approval of Pfizer's vaccine. What do you want people to know about uh, the the CD or the FDA's decision to to approve this? Does it really change anything about the vaccine? It doesn't change. Well, it, it it'll it'll promote more mandates to use the vaccine. Okay, that's the bad news. And the bad news also, and it's in my article. When you look into what FDA did. Here's an example. There is a standard procedure for FDA approving new vaccines. One of the procedures used historically is that there's an advisory committee of physicians, okay, that's supposed to advise FDA whether they should approve a vaccine. Well, guess what in this Pfizer case? FDA did not use the advisory committee. What does that tell me? It tells me they didn't want medical advice, okay, somebody looking over their shoulder and looking at the data. This was a political decision. And the other thing I point out in my article is a long list of things that FDA told Pfizer they would have years to do more studies. Interesting. A study on whether vaccines would be their vaccine would be safe for pregnant women. They have a few years to do that study. And they have a few years to do other studies. Well, <laughs> That's why if we look historically at how vaccines get approved by FDA, it normally takes a number of years, two, three, four years even, okay? Vaccine maker has to do a lot of research, a lot of studies to prove the short and long-term safety of their vaccine. That's not happening in this case, okay? And then the other thing is more and more data keeps coming in. Uh, I point out in my article, uh, a good look at the data shows that just in the United States, mind you, probably 20,000 people have died after taking the Pfizer vaccine, okay? It's the same thing around the world, okay? Lots of deaths, lots of uh, ill health effects from the Pfizer vaccine. So are these va- is, none of these COVID vaccines are safe, in my opinion, okay? Uh, there's a piece of data that I, I, I put in one of my articles. If you look worldwide, probably 100,000 people have died from the vaccines. I want to, So now the issue is, it's a tough issue for ordinary people. Do I take a vaccine because the government says I should in order to prevent getting COVID-19? Or should I look at the data and look at the good information and say, wait a minute, there's a lot of risk in taking the vaccine. Now, some people, maybe the risk is okay because they're elderly. I think the cutoff is about age 70. Above age 70, for certain people with comorbidities, you can argue, well, maybe the risk-benefit ratio is okay and take the vaccine. But now we have all of this data on, on breakthrough infections. I'm just looking at new data over the last couple of days. It's amazing. Uh, 60% of the, in Israel, which is doing great work, highly vaccinated country, okay, 60% of the hospitalized people for COVID had been vaccinated, okay? 
And we're seeing that kind of number pretty much everywhere, whether you can trust the data. Uh, I think it's happening everywhere, including the United States, because what's happening, we've learned now, why are they pushing booster shots? Okay, they're boost, promoting booster shots because all the data is showing because of the breakthrough infections of vaccinated people that the antibodies that, that these vaccines supposedly create in the body don't last that long. They fade, okay? And they fade so that within maybe four, five, six months, and there's been testing done saying that all these antibodies from the vaccines are gone. So now people are getting reinfected. And the other thing about these vaccines I always want to emphasize, they do not kill the virus, okay? They do not kill the virus. And they do not stop transmission. So people who get vaccinated can still have a lot of virus in their body. They can accumulate new virus and they are transmitting the virus to other people, whether they're vaccinated or not, okay? So these are interesting vaccines. There, I wrote another article recently about two of the world's greatest virologists, uh, a French virologist who had won a Nobel Prize, mind you, and a Belgian uh, virologist. And what do they say? They've said exactly what Peter McCullough, a great doctor in Texas, has said, and many others, stop the vaccination program. There is no good news coming from from continuing the vaccination program. These two virologists, which are great people, credentialed people, experts, true experts, you can trust, and they've said that these, these vaccines are creating the variants, okay? That's very important. Why? Why? And once you solve, you know, the Delta variant, there'll just be another variant that they'll be talking about. Fascinating. So that's my negative view. <laughs> no, that's I. You know, you you have hit on a whole bunch of the the talking points that uh, that I was hoping to cover. We're we're coming up on our break. We got a break away here in about thirty okay. seconds. But again, we're talking with Dr. Joel Hirshhorn and. I want to come back to the idea that, uh, you know, these these breakthrough infections. I mean, if a person was hesitant to get the vaccine before, some of this data that you just mentioned, I, I think, would add fuel to the fire and, and give them a, yes. a very firm reason. See, if if, if it's this, if this means I'm signing up for a lifetime of boosters or or other mandated, you know, right. uh, shots, maybe I don't really want to, to get started down that road. Let's, and there's an alternative. And, and there's an alternative. Let's talk about that the other side of our break. We're talking with Dr. Joel Hirshhorn, and we'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. We're talking with Dr. Joel S. Hirshhorn. He is the author of Pandemic Blunder. And today we're talking about, uh, well, we're talking about the the FDA's approval of the Pfizer vaccine, but we're also talking about the breakthrough uh, infections and... Yeah, there's there's a lot of very uh, very interesting data that's starting to come forward. One thing 
that I am not hearing, though, and and I'm I mean the only place I'm hearing this is from dissenting voices like your own, as well as uh, like Doctor McCullough that you talked to. We don't hear much about natural immunity. Why is that oh, subject yes. off the table? It, that's it's such a good point, Brian. You know, people who do get infected uh, by COVID nineteen virus, the vast majority, ninety eight, ninety nine percent, have no serious health effects, but they actually have one positive. A result of being infected at some point in their lives. And that is they get what we call natural immunity. And now all this research has come out, and particularly a paper just published, I was reading the other day from Israel, they actually have proved, okay, through their studies and research, that natural immunity that you get from being infected at some point, the natural immunity is better than the artificial or what we call vaccine immunity. Now, this is an, that's why the vaccine immunity fades in, let's say, six months or less. The natural immunity is created in your body. Your immune system has all kinds of T cells and B cells and all these wonderful things that go on. And that natural immunity turns out is more protective than the vaccine immunity. Not it, More protective in two ways. It's not going to fade away like the artificial vaccine immunity. It stays with you, typically for a lifetime, and sort of reignites. It's an interesting natural immunity. It, 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 it stays in your body in such a way that when new viruses come in, it reactivates. That's what natural immunity is all about. Plus, you can do things to always boost your natural immunity. I take a supplement protocol mix, vitamins and supplements twice a day. Now, I've been vaccinated early on. And so there are things you can do, but the government does not recognize, this is the important political point, the government does not recognize that probably half the American population has natural immunity. If you have natural immunity, why would you take a vaccine? In fact, there's a lot of good research, Brian, that shows that when you add this vaccine immunity on top of natural immunity, that screws up your immune system. So now you're in deep trouble. And and so the government is not recognizing natural immunity. It, you know, with all these mandates, you can't get a card to show. That, yeah, and you could be tested, by the way. And interesting, uh, the government is not promoting the kind of testing that you could prove that you have natural immunity because there are tests that you could do. So, yeah, the government is not giving you credit for natural immunity. All of these companies, colleges and schools, they want you to prove vaccination. They don't want to talk about the fact that you don't need the vaccine if you have natural immunity. So, and, and you know, it's hard to stay ahead of the data, Brian, but there's so much data out there. I wrote a whole long article recently about all the blood problems from these vaccines, blood clots, okay, brain bleeds, okay, strokes, a great doctor in Canada, <laughs> Dr. Hoff, he does, he has the creativity, he's, he's following the research, so he does a blood test, he, he gives out 900 shots of the Moderna vaccine, okay, and then he does a blood test on his patients, it's called the D-dimer test, been around a long time, and it turns out that the D-dimer test Test the whether you have blood clots in your body. 64%, 64% of his patients who had gotten the Moderna shot 
had serious blood clots, okay? These are microscopic blood clots. They do not show up on any kind of scan, okay? No MRI, no X-ray, none of that. The D-dimer test is one of the few tests that you can do to show you have microscopic. Well, I've seen the slides from pathologists. Your body can be filled with these microscopic blood clots. We don't know the long-term effects, but when the Canadian doctor did this, he had patients already having serious health problems because of the blood clots. So the more you look at things, and this is getting in again that course, the, the benefit ratio, you know, the risk benefit ratio, there are so much data out there. And, and one of the challenges that, that I'm taking on is trying to get better information to the public by doing podcasts like yours, by publishing articles several a month now, uh, trying to get good information because why is all this insanity going on? Because big media is suppressing all the good information. That, well, it's bad about vaccines. It's good about alternatives. Again, I want to emphasize, I went through yesterday and I, I, I belong to a couple of sort of medical groups and I was checking what people were saying in their messages. I was amazed at how many doctors are taking ivermectin as a prophylactic, as an alternative to taking the vaccine. You know, they're taking one tablet a week, typically, most, most of these people, doctors, and, and that's a prophylactic. We know that it, from studies all over the world, studies recently published also show ivermectin really works. It's safe. By the way, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, fully approved by the FDA, okay, most of these vaccines now, only the Pfizer has been approved, but I guess the other ones will get approval. But the sort of political approvals, I want to emphasize that. They're not good medical approvals. Peter McCullough from Texas has made this great point all along. If we had seen all of this data on deaths related to vaccines, which is in the official CDC database, VAERS, okay, in the past, that kind of data, FDA would have taken the vaccines off the market. They took a vaccine off the market several, some years ago when just a few hundred people had died. A few hundred. This is the same database. Now we have thousands and thousands of people dying, but the vaccine is not taken out of the market. So there's no consistency in what FDA has done because FDA has become basically a political agency more than more than a medical agency it's not safeguarding public health it's safeguarding the political decisions of the powerful and big media is assisting this because they give good news about fda and they suppress all the sort of bad news about the vaccines particularly the pfizer vaccine it has almost worse data than than the other vaccines being used interesting well, I, I appreciate you saying everything that you just said. I can't for the life of me figure why there is such intense pressure to get everyone vaccinated. Um, I, I mean, look, some people, like you pointed out, it could make sense. If you are above a certain age, if you have comorbidities, absolutely, you may want to consider doing this. But it, it just seems like the the political goal is to get everybody vaccinated. It is a political goal. And the pressure, I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. I'm 55 years old, and I've been paying close attention for the last 25 years, and I've never seen anything that approaches this. 
because it's never happened before in the history of medicine that something like this has gone on, okay? And I, just on the positive side, I'm with, in my book, I talk about up to 80% of uh, COVID-19 infections, McCullough says 85% of COVID infections can be cured with these treatment protocols based on various generics, okay? Now we have several now. And I was listening the other day, uh, there's a great doctor, George Farid, uh, and Brian and Tyson in California. I think they've treated 6,000 or 7,000 people with these treatment protocols. Not one has died. Not one has gone to the hospital. So when the, you look at the official CDC data, there's over, they say over 600,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 infection. Well, you can quibble about the accuracy of the data, but most of those could have been saved, over 500,000. Okay, we're down to our final minute here. Uh, Dr. Hirshhorn, where can people go for more information? Your book, Pandemic Blunder, would be a good start. Where else would you point them? Well, there's some great websites. I, you know, I, I publish on, uh, on a couple of websites now, but I want to promote two websites for people to see good information about the bad effects of the vaccines. One is called 1000covidstories.com the number 1000 covidstories.com and the other one is healthimpactnews.com these are two great websites to see the truth about the bad effects of vaccines i'm publishing on a bunch of my articles go up now on wnd.com uh uh noqreport.com a bunch of websites yeah so that's but you got to you got to work to get the good information. Okay, Dr. Joel S. Hirshhorn, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We will talk again. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show.